Hi there, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially, the business and commercial podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes, who is a best-selling author of some fantastic books, All You Need to Know About the City, All You Need to Know About Commercial Awareness. He really is the guru when it comes to all things being commercially aware. So what we're going to cover this week is Deliveroo's IPO, which you might have read about in the news recently. What makes a good investment? The global shortage of microchips and the business behind space exploration. Plus, we are delighted to be joined by three of our listeners who will be asking questions to Chris at the end of the podcast. If you're ready to get started, let's go. Hi there, Chris, and how are you doing today? Very well indeed, Ben, and looking forward to this podcast very much indeed. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I am really looking forward to this podcast too. Um, We are, yeah, we're in a different time. It feels like we're in, especially if you are in England, I think Scotland might be slightly different at the the moment, but in England, we are now recording this podcast while we're allowed a little bit more freedom, getting very cold in um, pub gardens and doing a bit of shopping and uh, getting much needed uh, haircuts. Chris, have you been able to enjoy any of our new freedoms over the last few days at all? A, a little bit, but I, uh, I now cut my own hair and I'm going to carry on doing that because I have so little of it. We actually are united in that. I managed to give myself, well, I did give myself a, uh, a buzz cut, so very much shaved it all off um, about six or seven weeks ago with the expectation that my, all my hair was going to grow back ready for the 12th of April when uh, the barbers opened up again. But um, it still is looking very short still, so I think I've got a few more weeks before we uh, before we're getting into the barbers myself so yes um, we're not going to be talking about uh, the lockdowns or the easing of restrictions at all in this podcast this is a business podcast really designed for students recent graduates people entering the world of work to gain a little bit of understanding about key business stories but not just what you follow in the media FT whatever you're reading Um, but also analyzing some of the key trends within business so you can start building the wider commercial awareness. Fantastic if you're interviewing at different businesses across a range of sectors or even just starting out in the business world. Um, So we've got three conversations that we're going to be talking through. We've got uh, three different topics Uh, which hopefully you will be enjoying some really interesting stuff this week. Um, And then we're also opening up to the very first time to some of our listeners who are going to, who've sent in questions and we'll be covering those questions. We'll be putting them to Chris and he will be answering them too. Like every week, make sure that you do check out our LinkedIn, Thinking Commercially and our Instagram. There's always great stuff around the podcast, plus lots of advice, top tips and everything that you need to know. We also have some fantastic commercial awareness societies that are partnered with us. You can find all of them on our Instagram. So do log in. Other than that, Chris, are you ready to get started? I am. Raring to go. Perfect. Let's get to the first story. So the first story this week um, is on based on the news that Deliveroo, um, the very popular, especially during the lockdowns, um, very popular food delivery app, um, floated for the first time on the London Stock Exchange and made their shares public in an IPO. 
Um, however, it was touted, I think there was one commentator saying it was one of the worst listings in London history. Um, and this was largely because, well, it was a bad listing because the share price dropped significantly on the first day that it listed. I think it went down around 26%. Um, but one of the reasons that it did this is because a lot of institutional investors, so a lot of companies that invest on behalf of people and funds, um, decided to turn their back on the investment. They decided that the issues that Deliveroo have potentially around how they um, employ or don't employ uh, their staff, their delivery drivers, um, could cause potential worries in the future and wasn't something that they wanted to get involved in. Um, my first question, I guess, to you, Chris, is what problem does it cause if major institutional investors don't invest? Well, what, what we're talking about here, Ben, are... Um what I see in my mind as being three types of institutional investor who, who make up the bulk of them. Um, these are insurance companies, pension funds and fund managers. And basically they get their money from, from us. Um, you know, when you take out insurance, the insurance company invests your premium in the market and out of return it, it, it pays any claims that you make. When, when you're in employment, you save towards your pension, that money is invested for you. And, if, if, you've, if you've got some spare cash, you might put it in, into an individual savings account and a fund manager might invest that for you. So uh, the, these three types of institutional investor, they absolutely dominate uh, the stock market. Uh, individuals as investors only make up about 15% of the market. So institutional investors make up 85%. And if they don't like the look of an issue, and, and with Deliveroo, I, th I think, there, as you mentioned, there are various issues. It was touted as a, as a tech investment, but actually it isn't really. It's got a tech front end, but it's, it's a, a delivery business. Uh, also, it's been loss-making, and post-pandemic, will people use its services as much? It was priced too highly. And also, it had um, a novel two-tier share structure, which the London market is experimenting with, and institutional investors just didn't like the whole package. So my thinking with this, Chris, is that obviously delivery, there was, you know, talk also about it possibly being overvalued as one of the reasons why um, it lost so much value on its first day. Um, but do you think there's a chance that other companies, maybe in a similar route, would be possibly put off by going for an IPO based on what they've seen from delivery? And if so, because obviously an IPO is all about raising capital. Um, publicly listing, but raising that capital. If so, what other options are there for companies to sort of raise capital um, if they aren't going for IPOs? Um, to, to answer the first question, will it put companies off? I think what's been quite uh, interesting and novel about uh, recent years is the number of uh, tech companies there have been. And, and, and as, as everyone knows, if you're a tech company in particular that is still privately owned and, and you're valued at over a billion dollars, then you're known as a unicorn. And I think because tech companies have been, there have been so many of them, people tend to think that those are the only companies that might want to list and so they might be put off by this. But um, only a few weeks ago, uh, Doc Martens, the shoemaker, uh, uh, listed, it had Previously, it, it was family-owned, and then it was sold to private equity, and it was listed, and, and, and that was perfectly successful. So I think um, doing an IPA will still appeal to 
people who stop businesses, uh, you know, on, on a kitchen table and then decide to take it public, a bit like Fever Tree, the, uh, the tonic water business. But I think specifically in the case of, um, of tech companies, um, they don't need a lot of capital, but they do tend to be loss-making for a long time. And they need a lot of support to get the presence in the market that they need in order to get the network effect of, 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 of what they're doing. So it might put off uh, tech companies, but I don't think it'll generally put off entrepreneurs. Um, there are uh, lots of funding options open to, to businesses. I mean, what's interesting now is that in the old days, you'd either go to the bank for debt or you might go to people that you, you knew for equity investment to buy shares. But nowadays you get sovereign wealth funds, you get private equity funds like SoftBank, you get family offices, which are the, if you like, the private offices of extremely wealthy people. And institutional investors themselves, they, they, they um, uh, do a lot of private company um, startup investment. I mean, a very well-known fund called uh, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, uh, and its name does not reflect what it invests in. It's a big investor in, in businesses like Tesla. Although it is itself a, a publicly listed investment trust, it's a FTSE 100 company, about a quarter of its investments are in unlisted businesses. So there are lots of funding options uh, open to businesses these days. Where, where businesses are put off listing, it's partly, and I think this is very much reflected in the tech environment, a lot of the sort of people who start tech companies are very entrepreneurial. They're not actually personally very well organized. They're not very good at the admin of running a business. I mean, Steve Jobs is very much like this. And the trouble is that when you go public, everything is scrutinized and your advisors have to do a lot of work on putting in the sort of infra infrastructure that you need to start expanding, you know, back office functions like, like um, uh, HR, uh, tech, uh, uh, accounting and payments. And the sort of people who start entrepreneurial companies tend to find that very boring. And the real reason why people are often put off going public, and Richard Branson, uh, he actually took Virgin private. He took it public, didn't like being a public company, took it private because there's a huge admin and regulatory burden in being a public company. And you need to uh, do a lot around investor relations. And also markets can be quite short term. Uh, this has changed a lot over the last 20 years. Nowadays, institutional investors tend to be long-term investors and they engage with their management. But 20 or 30 years ago, uh, if they didn't like the look of a company that they invested in, they'd simply sell it in the market. And for people like Richard Branson, who was building a long-term business, that, that um, uh, uh, fluctuating uh, investor interest in his company, I think he found that quite unsettling. Amazing. Yeah, really interesting points. And I do think that obviously um, being privately owned scale up kind of business, especially in the tech space is becoming a lot more popular, a lot cooler. You would have heard the phrase, I think you would have heard the phrase uh, unicorn businesses. So uh, companies worth uh, a billion or, or more, um, but are also still in, have always been privately owned. So examples of that include Gymshark. A lot of you will uh, use their sportswear. Um, the um, CEO, you often see him on the news as got a uh, or I think the founder actually I think he might step down as CEO but the founder has got a uh, a fantastic backstory uh, to him as 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 well 
And um, one thing that I wanted to focus on a little bit within sort of, I guess, private investment was venture capital. Because I think it's a um, phrase that a lot of students, a lot of grads will hear when you're talking about uh, businesses getting in investment. Um, often known, um, especially in some venture capitalist uh, money as being kind of rocket fuel to um, propel sort of small, especially uh, tech businesses to try and achieve um, monumental growth. Um, but could you talk us a little bit about venture capital and why businesses use that kind of funding and what sort of businesses usually will use it? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I think the terminology, as often happens in the financial markets, has got quite confused because in the old days, venture capital and private equity were quite distinct things, whereas now they're, 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 they're kind of rolled together as being one thing. Venture capital, to my mind, um, is um, uh, equity capital, so people who buy your shares, provided by people who specialize in, in startups. Um, in the old days, quite often, these people were accountants who got, got a flair for business and they got together with others, invested their own money in small startups. And then when, when those startups did well, they sold out and then they, they recycled their profits into others and built businesses uh, that way. And there are a number of in, individuals who've, who've done that. But let, let's say I've, I've started a business on my kitchen table um, where, where will I look for funding? Well, the, the market's called, your first port of call, the three Fs. And this is um, uh, family, friends, and fools. That, that's what the market mm -hmm. says pejoratively. But beyond that, the next stage actually is quite interesting. And this is going to, uh, to business angels. Um, so, for, for, for example, uh, Julian Richer, who founded Richer Sounds, the hi-fi separates, um, which actually, interestingly, uh, has always remained a private company. He, he never went public with it. But um, after he, he made his fortune from Richard Sounds, he, uh, he, the first interesting thing he did with Richard Sounds was he basically gave it to his employees, which was a brilliant thing to do. But what he does now is he invests in small startups. He does that not to make money, but he does it to give him an interest in life, to get out of bed in the morning. So if you want to approach him for funding... Um, then, and he's interested, he'll put money in and he'll take a place on your board and he'll give you business advice. Uh, another one is John Majewski, uh, who used to own Reading Football Club. And I know of somebody who was given a phone number that they were told was John Majewski. So they rang it up and they got straight through to him. And they were absolutely astonished because they thought he'd have, you know, all sorts of secretaries and support staff that you had to fight your way through to get to the man. But no, uh, this person got uh, through directly to him. And John Majewski said to him, how much are you looking for? And he said, oh, 100,000. And Majewski said, I'm really sorry, but that's not enough for me to invest in because, um, you know, if I'm going to spend my time helping a business, I need to have a bigger stake. And I, I, I don't invest less than a quarter of a million in a business and you don't need as much money as I want to invest. But those business angels are very interesting providers of capital. Um, and at that point, having exhausted business angels, you might go to proper venture capitalists. And these are professional investors in, in, in uh, small startups. Um, and uh, you might ask, well, who are these people? Well, they, they are, they're, they're either standalone firms and there are some famous names like Alchemy and Apex, which are, are standalone firms, originally partnerships. Then they became limited liability partnerships and companies. But um, paradoxically, venture capital is provided often by subsidiaries of banks. 
And I say paradoxically, because I don't want you to confuse debt and equity here, because banks provide debt, basically, but they can have venture capital subsidiaries that are in the business of providing equity. So a venture capital outfit might be owned by a bank, but it is definitely uh, an equity investor. Amazing. And just to put in a little bit of context there for everyone listening to this, um, tech firms attracted a record of $15 billion worth of venture capital funding in 2020. So obviously, it was a tough year for business, slightly less tough year for tech businesses often because we moved virtually, tech-enabled businesses did particularly well. Um, But the market is absolutely thriving at the moment and lots of tech investment into the UK, which is really good to see. My final question on this point to you, Chris, is possibly quite a big one, and I think we could be here for the whole hour talking about this, but what makes a good investment? If you could summarize it in maybe a minute, minute and a half, um, what are people looking for? What investors are looking for? I'll I'll answer that, Ben, in in two ways. Uh, One is kind of non-technical, non-accounting, and the other is what are the sort of figures that you're looking for? So essentially what you're looking for is a business that has a, a reason for being, a business that it offers something that people or other businesses want. So it needs to have a clear niche. Um, it's what Warren Buffett, one of the most famous investors in the world, calls an economic moat. In other words, something that makes it different from other businesses and that other businesses, other competitors can't cross. They can't cross that economic moat and replicate what it does. You're also looking for a business that that has got uh, future growth potential. Most institutional investors, when they're looking at investments, they're, they're asking, what is the likely market and what is the share of that market that this particular business might, might, might be able to gain? And also you're looking for sensible management, people who are going to make wise investment decisions with with the the company's money. They're not going to splash it on acquisitions that don't build the business. And then just in accounting terms, the sort of things you're looking for are, um, you're looking for, uh, and and here I I take this unapologetically from Terry Smith, who runs Fundsmith, and he's a brilliant investor, and he's, he's got a terrific understanding of this. And what he generally looks for is, what is the sustainable return on capital employed? So given how much money is invested in the business, what is it throwing off in profit in relation to the capital that it needs in order to be in business? And then you're looking at a couple of other things, what sort of profit margin, the way Terry Smith puts it is he says, uh, if, if I can make this for four pounds and sell it for 10 pounds, I've got a profit margin of 60%, which is generally what he's looking for. And then two other things that are quite interesting. One is, one is called profit to cash conversion. And you think, well, that, that's bizarre. But the funny thing is that profit, accounting profit, does not necessarily translate into cash. So property companies, they revalue their property investments. That's not extra cash that they've got. So somebody like Terry Smith is looking for businesses that turn their paper profit into cash. And then finally, not being overextended in terms of borrowings, what the markets call leverage, and looking at the interest cover. How, how much income coming in have you got that will pay the interest due on your debt? So you're looking for, for multiples, you know. If you've got an under one, interest cover of under one, it means that the income you've got coming in is not enough to cover the interest on, on, on the debt, the interest that's going out. So those, 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 those are the sort of financial metrics. But above all, you're looking at a business that just looks as if it's got something that people want. 
Thanks so much. That was really interesting. Hope you enjoyed that home. We're going to leave this story just there. Our second story this week is all about microchips. And I'm going to level with you here. I have got a history degree and I'm in marketing. So if you are a computer scientist, a techie, an engineer, um, and you're worried that we've gone too too uh, too broad with the language, maybe not got quite specific enough, do get in touch, do let us know, um, do educate us. But um, what we want to do is really cover this from a commercial angle. Like we appreciate that most people uh, maybe don't have the, those technical degrees, uh, but need to understand how innovations are impacting the business world and what happens when they thrive or possibly slightly go wrong. So over the last um, sort of nine months, year, you might have seen in the microchip uh, industry. So microchips basically are the brain behind any electronic device that you have from your laptop to your phone to your car, microwave, whatever it might be. Um, it's a multi-billion, trillion pound industry. It's absolutely ginormous. So many are made um, each year. I think it was um, around 634 billion microchips were produced in uh, 2019. And I think it's getting towards a, a trillion um, coming up um, probably for this year. However, um, because of a lot of the uh, factories were shut in uh, sort of April time um, around last year, around uh, the start of the pandemic, um, the supply chain sort of, I guess, broke for a little bit. Um, there wasn't enough supply to meet demand. And obviously, ever since that point, there's been more demand with stuff like electrical vehicles, which use thousands in them, um, but also uh, just the need for kind of home computers, everything like that, which has driven a surge in demand, which supply can't keep up with. Um, there are factors around this that you know governments are funding um, the industries to try and produce more within their countries and possibly some mistrust with different sort of powers in the world big economies uh, has left uh, global supply chains uh, possibly uh, a little bit wanting um, but first of all Chris um, before we get into microchips um, how important for commercial awareness is it to stay on top of innovation like this I think it's interesting because it, it depends, uh, this is going to sound really odd, but it depends how you learn. Because I, I, I realized when, when I was a student that uh, I need to have a structure into which I can place information. Otherwise, it just doesn't hang together. And so what I find really interesting about this story, there are, there are enormous parallels between this and another industry which goes on in the background of which we're not aware generally as consumers, but which is hugely important, another business-to-business -business industry, which is the whole commodities industry, which is a massive worldwide industry. And there, there are parallels between the two, because in commodities, China is the biggest importer of commodities, first of all, to, 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 to drive uh, it, it's a uh, revolution in, in building and construction, now increasingly uh, for electric vehicles, and also because it says that it wants to be a net zero nation by 2060, that's also driving a lot of this. So um, the commodities industry is quite similar to, to, in a sense, to microchips. And the way I look at it, the way I look at these things is that a, a, a kind of taxonomy of way of looking at industries. There are uh, 
industries which are primary sector industries. And these are basically agriculture and extractive industries. So where you're, you're growing stuff in the ground or you're taking stuff out of the ground. So iron ore miners, for example, oil companies, they, they're all primary industries. Then you've got secondary industries, which are basically manufacturing industries. And then you've now got tertiary industries. Um, and, and these are kind of advisory industries like professional service firms. And people only realized that there, there, there was this tertiary level of, of commerce when um, Peter Drucker came along in the 1990s and said, we're all in a knowledge economy where what you know is, is more important than anything else. So even if you're, you're in a primary industry, you're a farmer, what matters is not planting the crops, but knowing when and where to plant them and knowing when to harvest them. Uh, if you're uh, an iron ore extractor, what's important isn't having the equipment to get the stuff out of the ground, but knowing where it is in the ground to get it out of. So Peter Drucker came along and it was as a result of that that people now see industry in terms of these, these primary, secondary and tertiary sectors. And I, I would say, I don't know whether management consultants and business schools say this, but there, there's a fourth one, which of course is the whole tech area, which we've already been talking about. So for me, microchips is, is part of that story. And it's very much part of the primary going into the secondary, because as you said, Ben, uh, my understanding of microchips is that they, they, are, they are to modern life as bricks are to houses. You know, everything is constructed using them. Yeah, definitely. Really interesting way of putting it. So thank you very much for that, uh, Chris. So we talked a little bit at the start around it being kind of a possibly more like a classic supply versus demand issue. But I think this one has sort of wide implications because when it comes to technology, there's a lot of mistrust between a lot of global powers. Um, America, China has been uh, something which has been dominated the headlines. Um where do you see this kind of industry going and what do you see as being important in this? And also, I guess, in terms of the supply versus demand, how can supply catch up with the levels of demand that we need? Well, I, I think the way you put it, Ben, is absolutely right. The, 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 the reason why we've, we've got this uh, su supply constriction is because uh, last year when car makers scaled back their projected production, uh, in the light of the pandemic, uh, chip makers did the same because car makers are very big customers of chip makers. Um, and, 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 and then what happened was that China in particular said that it needed more of them than, than, than people thought. But what's interesting about the industry is that 20 or 30 years ago, it was dominated by US companies like Intel. But at the moment, half of global production comes from a, a very famous company, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing. Um, and oh, oh, and, and uh, around about a fifth comes from Samsung. And so the US now is beginning to realize that actually it probably needs to uh, build back up its own microchip manufacturing capability. And, and these, these uh, chip factories, they're known as fabs, short for fabricators. And Intel, for example, is, uh, has said it's going to invest $20 billion, which is a lot of dosh in in building uh, two major fabs to try to get back up to speed but you've got to contrast that with uh, Taiwan Semiconductor invests about 25 to 30 billion uh, a year in expanding its capacity and, and on R&D so I think this is one of the areas 
where um, business shades into geopolitical issues because uh, chips are just so, so important to everything that we do and everything that we will be doing. So on this, a lot of companies produce chips. Actually, Apple have started producing their own, um, but there's only actually about three that you could probably say are at the cutting edge. And actually, there are three that you spoke about, um, Intel, Samsung, and TSMC. Um, They're at the cutting edge. And the problem is, and actually, I think there's a lot in the press that Intel possibly in some ways stepping back from that kind of cutting edge. It's very expensive to be at this uh, advancement in, in, in technology. But then those few businesses with plants that actually are very focused in certain parts of the world, it becomes very political accessing the supply of microchips. Both the US government and the Chinese government are building up suppliers you've just talked about. Is that good for business, though? So if the government are subsidizing heavily um, a certain industry because they know the importance of it, is there, it sounds good, it sounds great, because it means that the, the country can keep um, running, can keep business uh, going. But is there any downside with the government being as heavily involved? Gosh, that, that's a big question, Ben. And uh, I, I mean, I, I have to confess that... Um, this whole area of, of public government and private business and, and how the two relate to each other, it's, it's something I don't focus on particularly because I'm kind of more interested in, in the business side of it. And sometimes government has to step in. It, it can be very good at providing seed capital. But my feeling about government generally is that um, uh, government is quite a blunt instrument for achieving things. Politicians are very good at at forming policy and less good at executing it, which is why generally things that have a business focus to them end up being done in, in the private sector because they tend to be done more efficiently that way. And what government can provide is subsidized funding on the one hand and, and tax breaks on the other. So where, the, where this leads into geopolitical issues I tend to become less certain. And in fact, my, my only advice to those of you listening is that if you're interviewing on these topics, I would try to steer clear of the geopolitical aspects because if you're interviewing with big multinational businesses, they themselves have to be quite careful about how they position themselves in relation to the host governments where they do business. So um, my interest starts to peter out, as it were, when government gets involved, because I'm, I'm just kind of all about business, really. Uh, but one, one thing, Ben, I, just changing the subject a little bit back to what you were saying, this business of, of the difference between manufacture and design, you see, you're absolutely right. In, Intel is increasingly thinking of outsourcing to people like uh, TSMC, and it reminds me of that great UK business, ARM, which was recently uh, 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 bought by uh, the, the backers of, of SoftBank. Um, ARM is a chip design business in Cambridge. It doesn't make them, but it designs them. And that intellectual property is hugely, hugely valuable. So I think it's one of those areas where you can decide, are we going to be in the design business or the manufacturer business or, or both? And once you realize what you're best at, you tend to stick to it. So I suspect Intel is going through that process at the moment. Are we 
best of designing these things and retaining the IP and then outsourcing the manufacturer or should we do the design and the manufacturer as well? Amazing. Thanks so much for that, Chris. I think uh, we'll probably leave that story there. For our third story, we are going to look at space exploration. It is one of the most exciting industries. And I think, you know, who doesn't want to go to space? Like, you know, there's lots of people that I'm sure sitting there being talked about ever since I've been young, actually. Um, there's always been this talk about um, not just astronauts going to space, but actually having commercial flights, whether it be to space stations, Mars, the moon. Um, it's been talked about and talked about. Um, but over more recent times, uh, you would see with sort of new companies coming into the market, uh, SpaceX, Elon Musk, uh, Musk's company, or uh, Virgin Galactic um, as well, um, that more and more trials are happening private business is coming into the, the space and trying to make it a reality. I think we always hear a year, which um, keeps getting pushed back ever so slightly from, we'll be sending people in space by X date, um, which keeps getting pushed back ever so slightly. Um, but there's a prediction, I think it was uh, Morgan Stanley that believed by 2040, this would be a trillion dollar, I think it's just over a trillion dollar industry. So it is super exciting. Uh, it's got investors super excited. It's got business super excited. Um, Chris, has it got you excited from a business perspective? <laughs> well, um, since I was alive when, and I watched it on television when, uh, when uh, we first landed on the moon, um, I, I always thought that this was really quite exotic and dominated by very colorful people like Richard Branson and, and Elon Musk. Um, and it's only uh, recently reading the financial press that this is now being taken seriously uh, that I've become interested. And I think the first thing to say is what's interesting about Branson and Musk is that Branson is very much a, a B2C, business to consumer. He's about taking people up in a, in a space rocket and giving them an astronaut-like experience. Um, whereas Musk is very much business to business, or actually, and this chimes a little bit with what we were saying about microchips, a business to government business, because what SpaceX is doing is stepping in to what used to be the preserve of government. So uh, uh, in the 60s, 1960s, um, the US space program, its mission was to put a man on the moon. And in those days, it was very much thought that uh, private enterprise simply didn't have the financial resources to build a rocket to send people up there, which of course it didn't. What has changed is that rockets are now reusable. And so what you've got is a classic example of, of what in the UK is called private public partnerships or private finance initiative. And th this is how a lot of um, things like hospitals and schools have been funded over the last 20 or 30 years, where actually, the private sector can provide the capital. And because these rockets are reusable, you build the rocket. So Elon Musk builds a number of rockets and then says to government, we can let you use a rocket on a uh, per launch fee basis. And governments want to do this because they want to put things in space. Now, what has made this possible is that governments, I think after uh, the excitement of, of landing on the moon, uh, kind of they, they stepped away from space. They thought, well, uh, nobody's terribly interested in it because there's nothing you can, you can do there. 
And actually, the US in particular is concerned that there is a lot that you can do in space, and, and we'll talk about that in, in a minute, but it's completely unregulated. And the US government's attempt to get some kind of global agreement to, uh, on, on things like who controls space, who can exploit it, hasn't really gained much traction. So uh, governments generally are now much more interested in space than they used to be. And, and that's because of the, the opportunities that are out there. Actually, that feeds into a story that's, I think, happened in the last couple of days, possibly, that um, there's a, uh, an expert warned um, that, uh, that the lack of regulation was creating the Wild West in space. And this was after a story came out that satellites, one was SpaceX and one was OneWeb, um, came within uh, 190 feet um, of each other, two satellites uh, from them, which uh, sounds like a lot if you think of it on the ground and how far away you would be from a person or two buildings or whatever. But when it comes to satellites, that is um, far, far too close than they should ever be. Um, and it caused a lot of, well, they talk about sparking red alerts, but definitely um, um, got the interest of governments around the world. Um, but more, I guess, back to this uh, business side of things. And I think this is where it's hard to distinguish between personality and, and business because you would say that probably, you know, for maybe the last 20 or so years or 30 years, Richard Branson's been one of these big business personalities. He's, he's a brand. Um, same with Elon Musk in the last sort of decade or so. So do you think that in this industry, they like the idea of being in it because it builds them as these kind of high tech or um, great business people or do you think there is serious money to be made from kind of commercial space well you see it's interesting because spacex um last year alone launched 26 missions two of those actually took people up into space took, took astronauts to, to the international space station uh, on behalf of nasa and it's the first time that that has been done from the states since nasa grounded its shuttle fleet about 10 years ago now, uh, SpaceX reckons, and, and the reason for most of the missions was to, because what they're doing is building a, a kind of global broadband network in space called Starlink, but they reckon it'll cost them $10 billion to put that up there, which actually in the scheme of things is not a huge amount of money. And they reckon that it will bring them annual income of $30 billion. So behind the kind of the, the larger than life character that, that Elon Musk is portrayed as being, I think there is some serious business now going on here. And the, the interesting thing about space, and, and I'm, I'm quite new to this, I've been looking at it, just trying to see why the financial markets are interested. And the financial markets are interested because you, you've, you've got to look at it like, like uh, the skin of an onion. When we talk about space, there, there are different areas here. So there's orbital space, which is when you get beyond the atmosphere and you, you're going around the Earth, as it were. And the things that you can build there are things like the International Space Station, basically platforms from which you can do other things, like launch missions to the moon, to, to, to mine minerals on the moon. And with these platforms, there's a lot of infrastructure around making them, launching them, servicing them. But you've also got to think about suborbital, which is, which is kind of within the Earth's atmosphere. Huge markets for things like drones. So there is a company that is helping the US develop a capability to be able to launch a drone in space that can land anywhere on Earth within 45 minutes. 
and then and then they think there'll be demand for air taxis electric aviation and so on and ultimately they're even thinking in terms of you know you may be in the agribusiness you may be developing seeds but you might be developing seeds that ultimately will grow on mars or you might be in the drilling business well you might ultimately be be drilling for minerals on the moon and so the way the financial markets are looking at this is they're beginning to think there are an awful lot of businesses that have nothing to do with space whose products or services could be useful in in that environment and that i think is really interesting yeah, definitely. Interesting point on the bringing the cost down and saying that actually it doesn't cost as much because that has been, especially SpaceX, that has been their fundamental um, play in this market is that how it was done before uh, when it was more for scientific discovery, government led, they were sending all their technology up into space and they were going, that's it. As soon as it, it's gone, it's gone. And we, all of the money, all everything we've put in, all the resources put in, that's gone up in space and that's that's done. Whereas what SpaceX is trying to do, um, and actually I think I tested their SN10 uh, very recently, is um, make sure the rocket comes back to the launch pad. It hasn't worked on a couple of their tests, but it is starting to work. So all of a sudden, they're innovating how they approach, the, approach it all to bring down the cost. And then all of a sudden, that's where you can start sort of making a bit more profit and uh, working everything through like that. And I just want to say, Ben, that that is a really great point, because again, going back to what we were saying about microchips, what this is, is the classic case of the public and private sectors working well together, because the public sector might might pioneer it really expensively at a time when the private sector can't afford to fund it, because where's the income going to come from? And then the private sector says, yeah, actually, we can step in, we can make this, do this much more efficiently, we can make it reusable with reusable rockets, so that... We'll put in the funding to make the rocket, but because we can reuse it, we can sell use of it, launches, to many, many different customers, including many, many different governments. And that, that is a, a perfect example of the public and private sectors working really well together. That's fantastic. We've, we've both got very excited about this, which is excellent to see. And I hope that you've got excited as well. I think we've started talking a little bit quicker and we're trying to, I saw Chris sort of waving at me. We're doing this on, on Zoom uh, to get in, uh, get in his point as well, which is, which is really good. And hopefully you're excited about it. But I'm not going to try and end on too much of a dampener. But I do think it should be noted because a lot of times you read about this, there are worries about that spaces or the, you know, the money put into space was mainly in regards to defense um, or scientific discovery uh, past. It's only moderately recently that it's been kind of seen as kind of commercial um, and, you know, sending just random people, probably want of a better phrase, but random people, non-astronauts, non-trained astronauts into, into space. Do you think there is a concern that because of the want and the drive for private wealth creation, it could hamper possibly the scientific discovery um, that is so good. We saw all those images of um, on Mars, the uh, the rover landing and the images they got back there and thought that was absolutely incredible. Um, but do you think this, yeah, this private wealth creation element possibly could hamper some of the future advancements that we can make in the scientific community? Well, it's interesting you use the term private wealth because here I tend to think that it's kind of public wealth because, yeah, it's created by companies, but they are owned by pension funds and so on. So it's for the benefit of everybody. But I think... I think the, the point you make, Ben, which is a really, really good one, is that, and you said earlier, it's the Wild West, you know, the space at the moment is the Wild West. What happens is you get these pioneers um, coming in, but at some point, 
government steps in and says, okay, this needs proper regulation. Otherwise, people are going to get hurt. Satellites will hit each other. Uh, there could be fallout in the atmosphere. Well, what are the um, uh, climatic change impacts, you know? So I think what happens is you get, you, and, and I'm sure this happened in aviation, you know, um, 1903 at Kitty Hawk, first plane flies, everybody starts putting planes in the air, and then eventually governments say, hang on a minute, we do need some regulation around this, which is why uh, we've got government regulation about landing slots and, and that sort of thing, because it has to have uh, a government oversight, otherwise it gets, gets out of control. And I think that will inevitably happen in space, uh, as it has happened in, in all other uh, areas of, of commercial life. What an interesting topic. I think we're going to leave it there for the time being for this month, but um, maybe in a few episodes time, it might be something, there might be another angle, there might be uh, advancements. It's moving so quickly at the moment, all of this. Like I see, especially SpaceX, like testing very, very regularly. Maybe it's something you could revisit. Maybe you've got a question on it, which you could um, post to us in future months as well. Right, everyone. So usually we have a fun story, but I think to be honest, we've had lots of fun on this podcast already talking about um, the various different things, including uh, space exploration. But what we want to do this week, because we get lots of questions emailed um, through to us, we wanted to put a few of those questions to Chris. Um, obviously, this podcast is all about making sure you as the listeners get as much business knowledge, you feel confident about uh, transitioning as a student into the world of work. So are you all good with that, Chris? Happy to answer a few questions from the listeners? Perfect. We're going to head over to our first listener with their question. Hi, Ben. Hi, Chris. I'm Lydia. I'm a final year student at Loughborough University. Um, thank you for doing this podcast, by the way. It's brilliant. Um, it's really interesting and really easy to follow and understand, which is great. I had a question about insurance. I'll be going into the industry after I graduate, so I wanted to understand a bit more before I do that. Um, I had a lot of talk around pandemic insurance and kind of what this might mean for the government and businesses especially um, and I wondered what the feasibility of that is, uh, what the city's doing about it um, and kind of what we can expect to see from the industry um, in the next few years. Um, really interesting question about in, in insurance. Th thank you Lydia very much for that. Um, just a couple of things to say, uh, especially for those who, of you who aren't necessarily going into the insurance industry. There are actually two types of insurance company, which came as quite a shock to me when, when I discovered this many, many years ago. There, there's the insurance that, that we're all used to, which is, you know, the insurance you take out uh, for your holiday or, or uh, for, for losing your belongings. And that's called casualty insurance. But there's a different type of insurance called life assurance. And here, it's not insuring you against... Uh, the, uh, the possibility of dying because we all die. What it is actually doing is creating a savings product so that when you do die, there's money for your dependents to live on. So the first thing to realize is that what we're talking about in relation to pandemic insurance is casualty insurance, not life assurance. And the, most, of the, most of the media have covered this by saying, you know, those dastardly insurance companies, they've refused to pay out businesses have lost money, they took out insurance, and now the insurance companies say that the insurance doesn't cover it. That's actually quite unfair, because in the insurance world, 
it's not that you try not to pay claims out, but whenever you pay a claim out, it's a precedent. You know, if you pay a claim out in relation to this claim uh, for pandemic loss, then basically you've got to pay all claims for pandemic loss. And actually what the insurance companies did was they got together with the insured's representatives and they went to court. They said, this is something where we need to go to court to settle whether this particular policy wording does actually cover this eventuality. And, and the, the, the court looked at it and said, yep, it does. And so they, they agreed to pay out. And the interesting thing about that is that the policy wording is, is really critical. It's not insurance, insurance companies trying to say, we're going to catch you out. We're going to take your insurance premium and make sure we never pay out. That's not how it works. Because if they did that, they'd lose their business. What it is actually about is working out when exactly the policy should respond to the particular claim that the, the claim is trying to get cover for. So like a lot of these things, it's much more complicated than it at first appears. But it is a, an absolutely fascinating, fascinating industry to work in. Really excellent. Really fantastic question. Also on that, I think it was, it, it was Wimbledon, wasn't it? The tennis um, event actually took out. So a lot of sports events have been cancelled. Lots of everything's been cancelled, festivals, everything. But um, some people did have the, uh, the foresight to protect against this as well in, with insurance. And uh, I think Wimbledon got paid out over $100 million or something like that after cancelling uh, their tennis tournament in 2020. And just, just to say in relation to that, Ben, that Lloyd's of London, which is the global insurance market, it's actually a reinsurance market, but what its skill really is, is in pricing new risks. So just, just going back to the, the space exploration story, when satellites were first put into space, people didn't know how to calibrate the risk. Lloyd's of London provided the first policies against loss of satellite because they could work out the incidence of risk, so therefore what the premium should be. When Hollywood studios in the 1930s realized that their stars were really important assets, they wanted to insure them. And it was Lloyd's of London that provided the first uh, studio stars insurance policies to cover what happens if, if, if your star is unable to appear in your latest uh, movie. So that's what Lloyd's of London is about. It's actually about calibrating and pricing risk. Amazing. Thank you so much, Lydia. Hopefully that's answered your questions. That was a lot of fun hearing your question. Um, and well done again for um, securing your graduate role. Um, that seems pretty good, Chris. Will you have that? Are we ready for another one? Let's head yep. over to our second question this week. Hello, my name's Lucy. I go to Durham University and my question is about how one of the strengths of artificial intelligence is its ability to rapidly process data. How are law firms planning to reconcile this potential threat to the service they provide, whilst also profiting off of the growing AI market? Uh, great, great question, Lucy. The answer is law firms are already doing it. They're already using AI to do exactly that, because you'll know that in areas of due diligence, for example, for M&A deals and, and discovery for litigation, you, you can have uh, uh, tens, hundreds of thousands of documents that uh, you've got to go through looking for particular words that might pop up. And uh, traditionally, uh, uh, you know, trainees and associates would do that, and then increasingly paralegals would. Well, now law firms are using AI to do it. So I don't think AI is going to do law firms out of business. What, what it actually enables them to do is to uh, uh, do that part of their work for which they can't charge properly, because in the client size, it doesn't add much value. They can now do it themselves much more cheaply and effectively, which of course is good, good for clients and, and good for law firms because it frees them up 
to do the much more interesting value add stuff. Um, and that's where they can charge clients properly. So I would say that uh, uh, serious law firms are already doing this. Really fantastic stuff. Really fantastic there, Lucy. And thank you very much, um, Chris. I think all our listeners are asking much more insightful questions than, uh, than I do. Maybe, maybe next week or the next time, like uh, we could have guest hosts on this podcast uh, each week that can ask the, ask the questions. But no, for now, make sure that you keep sending in your questions. Um, we'll set up everything so you can be on the podcast. And we're going to try and do three a week. So as you, the student amongst you will know, we've only done two. So we've got one final question and here goes. Hi, I'm Marshall. I'm a second year law student at University of Warwick. I'm keen to hear more about the geopolitical landscape and how that could impact the country's ability to do business. Currently, China is being condemned by many countries for the events in Hong Kong. Is it likely to have an impact on their investment projects across the world? For example, Belt and Road Initiative. Thank you. That is a great question because to my mind, it, it kind of explores the the outer limits of what commercial awareness is, is really about. Because I think if I were the Minister of Trade for a country, that would be absolutely what I'm concerned with. How, how is our place in the world and how are the dominant uh, political players in the world going to affect our business? And that is obviously going to affect, affect the industry in my country and the taxes that, that I, as part of the government, that we're able to raise from business for the benefit of of society in our country generally. If I were a CEO of a business, I'd be thinking, um, where, where can I do business without um, being at the whim of government and without irritating government? And I would be aware of that as one of the factors determining where I expanded globally. I'm going to be driven principally by the markets, but also obviously by the political environment in each market. And I think all, all I can do at this point is say, uh, and this is going to be a really unhelpful answer. Yes, obviously geopolitics has a massive impact on business. But I think what most business people do is they try to stick to the business, which is what they understand. And they leave the politics really to the politicians, which is their job to, to handle. A massive thank you to our three members this week. Really massive thank you to Chris. Hope you enjoyed it this week. Um, we found it really interesting. We could see ourselves sort of smiling away. Hopefully, one day we might be able to do this podcast in person. Um, and yeah, it might sound a little bit different when we do. Maybe uh, you might be able to spot it um, when we are able to do it in person uh, when restrictions are lifted. Fingers crossed that happens uh, at some point this summer uh, as well. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got lots out of it. We are always looking for members to ask us questions. Please email ben.triggs at brightonnetwork.co.uk if you want to have your question answered live on the podcast. Other than that, do make sure that you check out our Instagram channel. Lots of fantastic stuff there. You can also find stuff on LinkedIn as well well and finally please do share this podcast with everyone and anyone that you know that students recent graduates people starting out in the working world uh, we hope you're finding it useful and if someone else would find it useful we do want you guys to share it so please do and from me from chris have a fantastic rest of the month